Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from the Presidential Plenary Scientific Session of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, and is titled, The Coming Revolution in Medical Genetics, From Double Helix to Genomics and Back Again. Here's the president of the ACMG, Dr. Wayne Grody. As you all know, we're at a real uh, turning point of our specialty now. And I thought in planning this session, we would kind of uh, take stock in that, uh, look toward the past, uh, including the very deep past, what led up to this, and also um, how we can be best positioned for the future. Uh, to say that it's an honor for me to be the president here, it's such an understatement. I know it sounds like a cliche, but um, it's not something I uh, ever expected. I'm cognizant that I'm a somewhat different kind of ACMG president. Although I, I do clinical genetics, I, most of my activity has been on the lab side, which of course is a very important constituency of our college, but it's a little unusual for this uh, office. So in fact, um, when the nominations committee contacted me uh, to tell me about the nomination, it happened to be in 2008 when there was another election going on, um, my first thought was, uh, what are they up to? Is this some kind of Hail Mary pass, kind of like uh, McCain picking uh, Palin? Uh, <laughs> now, I hasten to point out that's the only similarity there. <laughs> um, but then the more I thought about it, uh, maybe it makes sense. And of course, in 2008, I don't think we, any of us could have dreamed how much clinical and lab genetics would be coming together uh, with the advent of um, next generation sequencing. So the timing uh, is really nice in a way. For my career, it's clearly the, the cap of it. Um, there's no doubt about that. But even really for my whole um, life, DNA has always been very important to me, uh, both aesthetically and scientifically uh, and academically, I guess. Uh, in fact, um, I was born in the exact year that Watson and Crick um, discovered the uh, structure of DNA. And for those of you doing the math, uh, stop it. <laughs> And I think my first consciousness of the double helix was maybe 10 years after that when this issue of Life magazine appeared in our uh, mailbox. And um, it's kind of this construction paper model of DNA, which I didn't know what a molecule was or anything at that time. But the, the thought that this beautiful curling thing could have the secret of life just really uh, captivated me. Of course, this model isn't really the way DNA looks any more than the stick model that Watson and Crick had which itself was based on uh, actually this picture by uh, Rosalind Franklin, uh, especially the famous Exposure 51 of her uh, X-ray crystallography that really showed DNA was, had a helical uh, structure. And over the years, of course, we've seen all kinds of other ways to represent DNA. In chemistry classrooms, we see these uh, space-filling models. Of course, it doesn't really look like this. I mean, it probably has some electron cloud with quantum effects uh, surrounding it, and we're actually going to touch on that uh, during this session, uh, believe it or not. Um, you can actually represent DNA with Legos, if you're very skillful, by a lot of sets. Uh, you can also do it with um, candy and marshmallows, and um, I, I kind of like that as well. And uh, like I said, no matter how you represent it, it, it just has a certain beauty to it, and it's always uh, really been part of my daily life. Actually, the truth is, like everyone else in LA, um, what I really want to do uh, is direct. 
And so <laughs> much of this talk will actually have to do with film, but um, for this particular time, I'm inspired not, not by our friend Stephen here, but uh, by another director from the generation right before his. And uh, would any film buffs in the audience like to identify this person? No, not Orson Welles. <laughs> yeah, I think you got it. Stanley Kubrick. And I wanted to draw your attention to probably his most legendary uh, film, among many, uh, 2001, which actually started out with some little experiments in non-human primate genetics and then led to the future of man. Um, but I think it actually has uh, a metaphor or allegory for us uh, today. Maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but if you'll just sort of bear with me. Uh, the film opens with these sort of pre-humans. Uh, one of them eventually discovers that you can use a bone as a weapon, and that's supposed to symbolize the beginning of all technology. It also leads to um, what's been called the famous jump cut, um, probably the most famous editing cut in cinema history, I would say. Um, most cuts in film, such as when two actors are conversing with each other, the actual real, although it takes all day to do it, the real time with that cut is less than a second, um, or maybe minutes or hours or a day or something. Um, this cut actually spanned um, four million years, and there's never been anything quite like that. Not only is it a jump cut of huge proportions, it's also a match cut, because uh, the action in both scenes is kind of symmetrical, as you can see. The symbolism, of course, is that the bone, the first tool, eventually became spacecraft and all kinds of other um, weapons and so on. Um, I would submit to you that um, the ACMG and our specialty of medical genetics are undergoing a jump cut right now. Uh, we're actually right in that little uh, line there uh, between the two frames of films, film, and um, which way it goes uh, will remain to be seen, but I think it looks uh, optimistic. So with all due respect to Mr. Kubrick, I'm going to modify this um, jump cut just a little bit. And here we're going, not from the bone to the spacecraft, but from our beloved ABI sequencers to the Illumina or Ion Torrent or Next Generation, uh, which is really where we're headed now. And the kind of data we look at uh, is not going to be for too much longer the four fluorescent colors of the nucleotides on a capillary electrophoresis, but aligning millions of tiny uh, fragments uh, in the computer done by next generation uh, sequencing. So to me, this, we're really exiting the era of molecular medicine, which I actually date, believe it or not, to the mid-1970s. Of course, it didn't really take off routinely till the mid-1980s. But this is the time uh, Y.W. Kahn at UCSF uh, did the first prenatal diagnosis of hemoglobinopathies, including sickle cell, using uh, allele-specific uh, probes. And now we can go beyond just one gene at a time, and we're really into the era of uh, genomic medicine. Of course, in the interim, we've also had one other minor little development, the, the uh, launching and completion of the Human Genome Project. But I've highlighted the fact that we should always keep in mind that uh, it actually took not 15 years, but actually 13 years, uh, and over $3 billion to sequence the first human genome. Occasionally, my lab has been accused of having turnaround times and overheads in that ballpark, but <laughs> we won't discuss that any further. Now, of course, we can do these sequences for a few thousand dollars um, in just uh, a few days. So it really has um, changed everything. 
So again, we're moving from Sanger sequencing, doing one fragment of 200 nucleotides at a time and looking at the results by electrophoresis to uh, doing 300 million or more uh, short fragments all being read in parallel. So it's also called massively parallel sequencing. So again, we have um, new representations of uh, DNA. It's been a while since most of us have worked with these uh, gel sequences. Uh, most of us are still working with um, the capillary electrophoresis sequences, but um, I think increasingly the data we're going to be looking at uh, is this, uh, the cluster array of, of fluorescent depending on um, what the uh, platform is. So we're moving from techniques that are, have kind of been aimed at single genes and one disease to potentially all the genes, all the diseases. Now that's not really true. Most of the genes in the genome, we have no idea uh, what diseases they're associated with. But because of the advent of the new techniques, the high density microarrays and the next generation sequencing, these are actually within our practical reach. And although most, most of our attention these days is to the next gen sequencing, I think it's always worth keeping in mind uh, the technique that we have established uh, the last few years, uh, the chromosomal microarray. Um, geneticists have actually been looking at the whole genome for decades in the form of a karyotype, so in that sense it's nothing new, and this is really a molecular karyotype. We've had to deal with uh, all of the challenges of um, uh, uncertain results, in this case copy number variants that have never been characterized before, but I would submit that we've dealt with it pretty well on the microarrays, and I think um, while this work will continue, it can be a nice precedent for us and what to learn from as we now try to develop the similar standards for uh, next generation sequencing. The challenge there is obviously bigger when you're looking at every nucleotide of the genome or the coding regions, uh, the exome, uh, there's going to be many more uh, findings of, of unknown significance. Roughly every one of every thousand nucleotides is, is polymorphic between people and uh, we somehow have to deal with that. And that's been called uh, by some people the incidentalome. We're trying to move away from that within the college, calling it secondary findings and so on. But they're basically things you didn't set out to look for, and they're there. And once you've seen them, you kind of have to deal with them. You can't just pretend you didn't uh, see it. The R117H mutation, in a way, is kind of an incidentalome finding. Um, many times it doesn't cause classical CF at all. It causes male infertility, absence of the vast deferens. If we're charged with screening the population for CF carriers, we're not actually trying to pick up infertile males, and yet you will get that, and we had to deal with that in making our recommendations. The other one I've circled here, the uh, I-148T, a missense change, is what um, I guess we should have called a, a variant of uncertain significance. It really looked, based on the patient registries, that it was a, a true pathologic mutation, and only in later years was it shown to be a completely benign polymorphism. And I would caution you that uh, we had committees of the college vetting all of these mutations for two and a half years, and even then we got uh, one of them wrong. And so how are we going to face that now with 25,000 genes or, or whatever it, it will be? Of course, when you're looking at the whole genome or exome, it goes beyond just missense variants of uncertain significance, which I think we now have enough experience with in single gene tests. BRCA and CF and so on. Here we're also going to find both variants of unknown significance and true pathologic changes in other genes that weren't really part of what we were targeting based on the patient's phenotype. Some of those genes may make sense for the phenotype, others would be kind of a stretch. Um, I find in doing this stuff, it it's really is the art of medicine. 
in a way that's what makes it kind of fun. Um, it's, it's definitely not doing like doing factor five Leiden tests and things like that. Every case is different because everyone has a different genome and you, you really have to weigh the findings of how much weight to give them and does it make clinical sense almost in an Oslerian way of you know gleaning subtle findings on a physical exam. I think it opens a great new vista for us both the laboratorians and our clinical geneticists uh, because of that. And then the ethical issues which um, what to do about serious incidental uh, findings in non-target genes, off-target genes, but they're so medically uh, significant and possibly dangerous that you can't just hide them or sit on them. And the example most people use is, let's say you're testing a two-year-old girl for hearing loss. Um, you look for you know, any of the hundred or so genes that can be associated with that. You may or may not find anything in those, but in the course of doing it, you find a real pathologic mutation in the BRCA1 gene. And what do you do with that? We normally would never do that kind of pre-symptomatic testing for an adult onset disease in a, a child. We have our, our standards about that. Certainly in a two-year-old, you're not going to do any prophylactic mastectomies or oophorectomies. But her mother could easily be at risk. Um, it, is it proper to keep that hidden, even though it was not the test that was uh, asked for? What we haven't yet gotten into, but we certainly will, is informed consent. Uh, this may or may not be the solution, I don't know. Um, would we just ask the patient before the test what kind of uh, results they want or don't want? This assumes patients can even parse you know, these nuances, which I'm not so sure they can. But you could theoretically have a multi-tiered consent ranging everywhere from the patients who want everything um, now, if they want the uh, cluster arrays, those actually take five terabytes of memory, so that won't fit on a CD or DVD. I guess they could pull up a truck in the back and walk out with a server if they want. Of course, it's still a bunch of four letters that don't mean anything to anyone, probably including us, but if they want it, I guess they can have it. Uh, they could ask for just the filtered rele relevant information, maybe only for what the phenotype was. So in the example I gave, you would only report out a deafness mutation but not the BRCA. Uh, something that's medically actionable for the patient's age. With a two-year-old, again, you wouldn't report that. Actionable for the future, of course you would, or for relatives. And not that any of these are hard and fast. I think you really have to take each case uh, individually. One way to avoid the incidental results, of course, is just to stick to panels of known genes for that disease. Let's say the 20 uh, genes that cause hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, and many labs who have next-generation sequencers are doing this now. It's certainly a perfectly valid way to do it. It's much easier to do it this way than by Sanger sequencing. Of course, if those main genes are negative, then maybe you would like to look at the rest of the exome. Um, we don't know. Um, for exome sequencing, just so everyone knows, it does involve an initial exon capture step, which is not 100% efficient. So although we call it whole exome, it's really 97% exome or something like that. There are some exons in the genome, and they're usually the same ones every time that just do not capture well or they're not covered well. And you have, if you need them, you've got to get them by a, another method, whereas whole genome should be 100%. As you know, this whole exome technique has also led to gene discovery in a miraculous way. Um, I think we can now say goodbye to all these decades of doing gene mapping using linkage analysis on huge families with uh, multiple affected and unaffected members. Now you just do one experiment in one nuclear family, mother, child, father, it, sometimes even just the child, and, and you've got it. 
And it was actually at this very meeting two years ago that the first one of those discoveries I confronted um, was announced. And it was um, uh, just a wonderful, exciting thing that they had found um, a gene for Kabuki, a disorder I wouldn't have even necessarily thought was, would have been due to a single gene. And there have been many, many since then. So this is the evolution of the field as it's gone. Uh, single gene, single mutation like the sickle cell. Single gene, multiple mutation panel would be our CF screening panel. Uh, multiple genes, multiple mutations, uh, I guess would be like the Ashkenazi Jewish screening panel. Then whole gene sequencing like BRCA. Multiple whole gene panels like the deafness and uh, uh, cardiomyopathy. And then whole exome and whole genome sequencing. It remains to be seen which of those will end up being the dominant technology. Um, how will it actually be delivered? And the college is very um, attentive to this. We're trying to be proactive. Some of this is out of our control, unfortunately. Um, not everyone will want to pay a million dollars for the sequencer, so there are companies that will offer to do the sequencing off-site. Personally, I prefer to have it all under one roof, but that is an option. Um, until uh, insurers uh, see the value of this, uh, will it be only the wealthy who are able to pay out of pocket for it? I hope that doesn't last too long. But it's so easy when you submit this kind of thing for reimbursement for them to just say, well, they never heard of it and you know, there's no indication they're aware of, so it's just experimental uh, or investigational. I think what will solve that are professional practice guidelines. And here we can learn, as I said, from the experience with the microarrays. We do still have trouble getting those paid for, but not as much as we used to, because since 2010, we at least have our practice guideline saying that this is the first tier test, and um, it's hard for them to ignore that as the standard of care. So it'll be a while before we have such a guideline, I think, for uh, whole exome sequencing, although the position paper we have at least is a first uh, step in that direction. Uh, will parts of the genome or exome be off limits? Uh, there are certain genes that you shouldn't be looking at on an Illumina instrument. You're supposed to use this little kit here and just mail it off. Uh, and we're all aware of um, what's going on there. Will, will we be obligated to uh, mask not just BRCA1 and 2, but all the genes that have intellectual property associated with them? Or if you don't mask it and you find some life-threatening mutation in one of them, is it patent infringement to report it out? or is the liability worse by not reporting it out? So our college, along with a number of other professional organizations, as you know, has served as a plaintiff in the ACLU-sponsored case, uh, um, questioning the constitutionality of the BRCA1 and two gene patents, and really all gene patents, uh, being as products of nature. Uh, things have moved well and then not so well. That We went through the first federal court beautifully, siding with us. The next one, the federal appellate court um, reversed that, sided with the defendants. Then it was appealed to the Supreme Court. Because they just ruled on another case we've been involved in, Prometheus versus Mayo, in a, in a good way um, that, that helps our side, um, they've actually remanded the Myriad case back to the lower uh, federal court. And almost whatever happens there, it's going to be appealed again by one side or the other. Uh, to the Supreme Court. So our fate uh, will rest in the hands of these nine people, uh, for better or worse. I'll let you decide <laughs> what you think about that. And then I just want to do the last part of my talk, um, taking as the inspiration, uh, I guess, what you'd call the third act in the movie 2001. But here I'd like to say we, it's not too early to think 
about us going beyond the genome. I know we've barely wrapped our heads around even the whole exome sequencing, let alone whole genome. But um, in the spirit of being proactive, I think we should be looking ahead uh, to the near and even more distant future so that we're well-placed to take these new technologies um, as they come. I, if we've learned anything from the Human Genome Project, it's been that the genome sequence is a wonderful tool for all these other things we're doing, but in and of itself, it hasn't answered a whole lot of questions, especially not clinical ones. I think for that, you, you need everything else, the transcriptome, the proteome, all of those things interacting with each other, the epigenome, metabolome, and so on. All of those should be um, legitimately um, under our purview. And I want to just give you some examples uh, showing that they are actually already here. Uh, and I'll only give one example of just a few selected ones of these that I've just found really intriguing over the years. Uh, clearly the transcriptome is important. It's dynamic. It changes with the age of the individual during development and so on. The oncologists are already very attuned to microRNA. It seems to be in a way more important than the promoters of oncogenes. It's really the microRNA that is the master controller. Probably that applies to some genetic diseases as well. And really all non-coding RNAs I think are important. Um, uh, one example is a, a mutation in a small nuclear RNA that's involved in the splicing complex uh, is a cause of a, a type of uh, microcephalic dwarfism. And I'm sure there's many others like that. Keep in mind, those things will not show up in a whole exome sequence. So we've got to broaden our sights uh, a little bit. Um, RNA editing. That's where uh, something in the cell changes the sequence of the messenger RNA after it's been made. So you can't really predict um, the messenger RNA sequence from the gene sequence. And um, this has been a feature well documented in lower organisms, such as trypanosomes. I think it's been best studied in those. But apparently it happens in higher organisms as well. So if we're only looking at the exon sequences, we're not going to see what the genes are really um, coding for because they've been changed at the uh, messenger RNA level. Here I take a little bit of inspiration from a somewhat lower organism, although sometimes I think this organism's more advanced than we are. Um, Gene Robinson, who's at University of Illinois, uh, headed up the honeybee uh, genome project. And besides just getting the whole genome sequence, he's done some amazing work on uh, how expression of the genes in the honeybee changed during development and actually um, influenced the bee's uh, behavior. So the only thing you need to know about bees, most of the hive is workers. Of course, they're all clone. It's all one clone, of course. They all have identical genomes. And um, worker bees uh, live one month. That's their life expectancy. The first two weeks, they serve in the hive. They clean it out. They feed uh, food to the larvae in, in the little... Um, hexagonal cells and so on. And then suddenly at age two weeks, they leave the hive and become foragers where they go looking for uh, pollen and, and bring it back uh, to make honey and so on. Uh, Robinson's lab has actually looked at, uh, by both array and next-gen sequencing, uh, expression of the whole transcriptome in the um, honeybee brain. And out of 5,500 genes, 40% of them change drastically in that little day between being the, um, the caregiver <coughs> in the hive <coughs> and the uh, forager outside the hive. So this is really a molecular explanation of, of the mind and of behavior. Um, could this apply to humans as well? Um, 
it probably does. I mean, we can't just be grinding up brains of babies to study that, but is it possible that some kind of uh, transcriptional change really determines the baby's behavior and what that person decides to do in their life? Uh, do they want to be a caregiver or a forager, one or the other? <laughs> My apologies to uh, Lynn Fleischer, sorry, <laughs> and any other lawyers in the audience. We have epigenetic and nutrigenetic effects. Nutrigenomics, of course, has gotten a bad rep because of the direct-to-consumer stuff, but there actually is some truth to it, and I think it can also affect um, the epigenome. Again, there's proof of that in honeybees, and this is, this is a different group that uh, studied uh, what makes a worker bee into a queen. Uh, all it does is when the hive needs a queen because their old queen has died, um, the workers just start um, feeding royal jelly, a different kind of food, to a few select larvae. And that one change, um, actually through methylation and demethylation of genes, uh, makes those larvae emerge as a queen, a fertile female that's long-lived rather than a sterile worker that only lives uh, for a month. Um, could this apply to humans? Um, actually, the experiment has already been done uh, in the UK and apparently <laughs> does work. Topological uh, formation in the cell, this we've got a long way to go, but there are studies showing that genes on completely different chromosomes come together and interact in a repeatable way. Histones or something must be involved in it. So it's more than just a trans effect from the opposite allele. This is a whole other gene on a whole other uh, chromosome. I'm not sure of diseases caused by that yet, but there probably will be. Uh, somatic mosaicism, uh, something less presented earlier today in the, uh, the overgrowth syndrome session. This is just perfect for next generation sequencing because owing to its highly parallel nature, it can pull out anything that's there, even in tiny amount, even if you don't know the sequence uh, ahead of time. And that also makes it great for tumors, you know, which are very heterogeneous uh, as well. Um, and I think mosaicism, as he showed, uh, is the cause of Proteus syndrome. It may well turn out to be for other disorders as well. Uh, we all know the wobble hypothesis for codons, uh, where we have different um, codons uh, for the same amino acid. Obviously, this is there for some purpose. It evolved that way. Like everything else in genetics, it's really evolution. This is just an example of the, what's called the codon bias, just for arginine, which happens to have six codons and some of them are more prevalent in the genome than others. The prevalence in the genome is directly proportional to the prevalence of the corresponding transfer RNA that, that recognizes that codon through its anti-codon. Why did it evolve that way? Um, I think maybe if you can get a hint of that looking at these lower organisms, which are far more skewed, probably gives some kind of resistance to viruses who have a different kind of codon bias so they can't quite as efficiently take over the cell's machinery, at least that's just a suggestion. But it actually has impacts on genetic disease. There are some disorders where you have a synonymous amino acid change, valine to valine, the kind of thing our informatics filters out and never even shows us, and yet it is deleterious. And one reason it may be is because uh, the, uh, the new valine codon is one of the um, less abundant tRNAs, and, and the gene just can't keep up with what's needed for its full function. So you get a little bit of a loss of function. Keep in mind, most of these synonymous changes we don't even look at when we evaluate a whole exome sequence. So again, I think we have to keep our eyes a little more uh, wide open. 
uh, genetic ecology, I call it, which is sort of the interaction of our own cells with the tenfold greater amounts of DNA in our microbiome. Again, this, we know this only because of next-gen sequencing, that there's a thousand species of bacteria in our uh, intestines we never knew existed because we could never have designed primers to pull them out. But this technique pulls out any sequence that's there. And I have no doubt that there must be cross-transfer of nucleic acids uh, between them. Uh, again, it, just to show the power of this beyond PCR. PCR is a wonderful technique. It certainly transformed clinical molecular genetics uh, when it came about in the mid-80s. But because of its amplifying nature of the small starting material, if there's a minority population surrounded by a much larger non-mutant population, uh, the minority can get just swamped and diluted out. Whereas with next-gen sequencing, that shouldn't happen. It should theoretically remain there in its same proportion and, and all be uh, read out. This is where I'm getting a little into science fiction, but I just want our college to be as proactive for whatever may come before any other uh, group thinks of it. Um, we've been through the age of molecular biology, molecular genetics. Is it too early to start thinking of an age of atomic genetics or quantum genetics? I know it sounds crazy, but already in some areas of biology there are quantum effects uh, demonstrated, uh, specifically in plant biology, which I'm no expert on. But when uh, the chlorophyll complex captures light, it's in the form of photons, and they're coming in randomly from the sun. In order, apparently, from what I've read, for um, photosynthesis to work efficiently, those photons have to become, um, what's the word, entangled or coherent. I, I guess those are sort of synonyms. It's a quantum effect. It's what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. Somehow the chlorophyll complex is able to do that inside uh, the cell. And even DNA, which I've talked a lot about, what does it really look like? Um, obviously, all its atoms have electron clouds in them. The uh, base pairing that we've talked about so glibly ever since Watson and Crick, you know, that it's just hydrogen bonding, well, what does that really mean? It turns out, actually, that the electron clouds have to meet in just the right way. They actually have to be entangled. So there is some kind of quantum effect. I don't know what this means or how you would measure it, but I can't help wondering if it could be responsible for some of the randomness we see in genetics that we just say, oh, it's a stochastic effect. It actually could be maybe a quantum effect, and if we have the tools someday, it, we might have a way to uh, predict that. So I'll end with just uh, three more views of DNA, none of which are, are accurate. Again, we don't know really what it looks like, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, to me, it, it is the molecule. Um, to me, it's at the heart of our specialty, uh, whether you're a laboratorian or a clinical person. And um, like many things, um, sometimes a child can kind of get to the root of things the best and the quickest. My son um, is uh, he's now 15, and I've tried um, his whole life to avoid influencing him in any way regarding what I do for my work. If anything, just the opposite. I'd rather he didn't do this kind of thing and just had more of a life. Um, <laughs> but when he was six or seven, completely spontaneously, I don't know what inspired it, uh, he handed me this thing. Um, I know it doesn't project uh, too well, but he's basically saying my dad works for genes DNA. I guess he knew the Dawkins selfish gene hypothesis. You know, we're really just working for our genes. And most important, I love DNA. So, <laughs> and I certainly do too. And I would just ask all of you as members to embrace it. 
we're at an amazing time right now. Um, I'm, it's just coincidence that I happen to be your president right at this tipping point, but I couldn't be any more uh, honored or excited uh, to really be here, at least as your nominal leader, um, of really the most important specialty in medicine at arguably the most pivotal time that specialty has ever had. So thank you again. You've been listening to a presidential plenary scientific session of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.